Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for Asians, Asian Americans, and mixed heritage Asians of all backgrounds to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics, everything from affirmative action to what it's like to be a restaurant worker during the pandemic to the nuances of the term AAPI. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and if you enjoy Homecoming and end up loving this episode, I would also really appreciate it if you subscribed on your favorite podcast platform, gave us five stars, and left us a review on iTunes, and also followed us on social media at Homecoming Pod. But in this Saturday's episode, I'm here with David Moria and Emmy Lea Kamimoto, the co-founders of the organization Strong Asian Lead, a grassroots media and entertainment company that provides educational and career resources to creatives of the Asian diaspora and is also redefining how the entertainment industry tells Asian American stories. But Strong Asian Lead is honestly such a multifaceted organization, and I'm very excited for David and Emmy to share more about it in this episode. And both of them are also incredibly talented creators and activists, too. Um, and they both definitely have a lot to share about their own experiences as Asian Americans and Japanese Americans in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. And today in this episode, they are going to talk about their identities and how they got started in media and entertainment, a strong Asian lead, of course, and other issues that have to do with diversity and Asian voices in Hollywood. So hi, David and Emmy. Thank you so much for joining me on the Homecoming podcast today. I'm so happy to have you both on. Um, as I was telling you both before earlier this week, Strong Asian Lead was one of the original organizations that I followed through the Homecoming Instagram. So I'm super excited to finally have been able to meet you both, to meet you both, like sit down with you and have this conversation today. Um, and you both have already been super supportive. So I really, really appreciate that. And thank you both for that. Um, but first, would you be able to introduce yourselves to the listeners? You can say things like your name pronouns, um, where you're from slash where you live, ethnic background, um, what you do, organizations you're a part of, really anything you want to share with the listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. I feel like I don't need an introduction. Uh, you introduced us so well. So um, yeah, my name is David Masami Moria. I'm an entertainment activist. Um, I am a fifth generation Japanese American. My family's been in America for over 100 years. Uh, our family was incarcerated in the camps in World War II, and a lot of that, uh, I instilled that a lot into my life, uh, to what the work I'm trying to do uh, for all Asians, but uh, in, for my community as well. So, you know, we've been excited to talk about these topics for the past year. We're now just being able to give it to the public and, and open up conversations, whether it's just in here in these podcasts or we're uh, opening up rooms on Clubhouse for the public to uh, express their feelings and understand um, where they are in their in where they're at in their industry careers, but also the issues that they have about being fired or not feeling like they can speak up in the room because they're the only Asian in the room. And if they speak up, they're not they're, no one's validating for them. So there's so much to be talked about. And I think identity work is really important because not only if you know who you are, you can really advocate for your yourself your people and the community at large. So we're, as much as we're gonna to work towards uh, doing that, we all have to work together uh, individual, individually so that we can find ourselves, but also as a community together. 
Well, Angelina, thank you so much for such an amazing introduction. Uh, it makes me all excited again to hear kind of the work that we are working on repeated back to us. Um, and we're so happy to be on the Homecoming Pod. What you have put together here, the stories that you've create, curated and lifted up have been inspiring us as well. So thank you for your work. Um, I'm Emilea Kamemoto. I uh, use the she, her, hers pronouns, and I identify as a mixed race Shin Nikkei, Japanese and American. Um, it's complicated, but it uh, means that I'm a first generation mixed race Japanese person and an American. So different from the Japanese American community, I grew up in Japan and the US and have both citizenships. So um, for now, at least, <laughs> but it, it means that my experience is one that's really grounded in Japanese identity um, from the small island over there on the east. And it also has meant that in both places, both America and Japan, I've, I've encountered a lot of experiences of belonging or not belonging. And so I think it's one of my lifelong quests to really define what belonging means to me in the space and every space that I'm in. Um, so I'm excited to, to share more on identity and the work that we, we do around identity because we think it's so integral to being able to advocate for yourself in whatever room that you walk into. And uh, in Hollywood, you work in, you walk into a lot of rooms where you have to advocate for yourself. So excited to be here. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you both so much for introducing yourselves. Um, and I, again, am super excited to talk to you both and learn more about you know, your stories, but also, you know, the community that you're trying to build through Strong Asian Lead and also other incredibly important issues when it comes to Asian representation in Hollywood, in media and entertainment. Um, but I want a big part of this episode to also focus on who you both are and your stories and your uh, Japanese and Asian American identities. So the first question I want to start off with is um, if you both would be able to share, um, you know, sort of your immigration story or your family's history and also just your entire journey of trying to reconcile and better understand your Asian American and your Japanese American identity. I'm uh, getting the pointer to go for me to go first. So my family immigrated uh, back in the late 1800s. Um, my great, great grandfather and grandmother uh, left their two children in Japan with their grandparents and went to Hawaii. They, uh, my great grandfather, great, great grandfather uh, learned how to, to build dynamite and blow up the uh, irrigation farm so that the farms could be irrigated and so they can build well crops. Um, during that time, they also had another child and then they moved to California where my grandfather did the same things and blowing up the mountains so they can grab the snow from the water and irrigate the quote unquote unfarmable lands. So they really built a lot of America in their farmlands and ended up uh, managing their own farm. Um, that was on my grandmother's mother's side. On my grandmother's father's side, my great grandfather, he was a ship jumper. So he came from Japan in 1909 and took a ship and when they got to Washington, he jumped ship and swam into Washington to then skip the immigration papers. He didn't have his papers. And so he then became a lumberjack. He broke his leg, became uh, went to the hospital for a year to heal himself. And that we think that's where he learned how to cook, uh, cook American food. 
because then he built restaurants up and down California, uh, ended up in Sacramento, having a family out there, meeting my great grandmother, um, and had five children. And once they, uh, once they established their, their, established their restaurant and got things going, then Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so after Pearl Harbor in 1942, the uh, America put them in, put all Japanese and Japanese Americans into concentration camps. My family went to Thule Lake and Amachi in Colorado. One uh, later on, my grandmother from the Thule Lake camp moved to Amachi. They said it was uh, better, much better food. They actually had eggs. She was really bored of all the pancakes there. Uh, she never realized how much food was so good until she moved to Amachi where they actually had eggs. And when they got out of camp, they were lucky to keep the apartment, but they were unlucky enough to not have kept the restaurant. So they had to rebuild their life um, in resettlement, save up enough money to buy a new restaurant, expand the restaurant within, I think they did that within the first year, and buy a, a house. They were very fortunate that they saved enough money before camp and made just a little bit of money during camp. Um, I could talk about stories all day about camp, but after that, you know, my grandmother helped work the restaurant, um, found my great grand, my grandfather, uh, they had their kids. My father was born. We had, they had their six kids and then I was born. So they lived here all throughout the whole 1900s. And so we've, we've really established a lot of our American roots into America. A lot of our Japanese roots are kind of lost, especially from the campsite, because when it was 1942, it was literally illegal to be Japanese. So they burned things, left things behind, stopped the culture, um, became very American. And so in my family, I had to learn Japanese and Japanese American culture through Google, through um, communicating uh, with the community at large. For 25 years, I thought I was a white American because I'm, I'm also mixed white. So I went to the white side of my family a lot. And when someone, I was an activist, um, I was in a protest and someone actually pointed out that I am a part of the conversation of people of color. I didn't realize I was a person of color until they pointed it out. So when I had to realize that, I was like, I don't know what it means to be Asian, Asian American or uh, Japanese American in America. Like, what do all those things mean? So history became a very important part of my life to understand where do we come from? How far has my family gone back? What happened to all of this culture? Why don't I know these things? And it became this long quest to understanding like all my ancestry and this larger sense of what, what happened in Asian America. How did this all become that we're in the situation that we're in, that we don't know our histories, that we don't know each other? Uh, I contribute a lot of it to loss of language. We don't speak the languages that are of our ancestors anymore. So our ancestors didn't get to pass down the stories and the folklores that were there. So we don't know that saying we've lost a lot of that. So, you know, my whole mission here for myself, my personal self is creating um, entertainment and television about Asian American history so that everybody's able to enjoy these, this story, these storytellings, but also to learn what Asian Americans have had to go through throughout the centuries, because they don't teach it in the schools. They, you, if you take a college class, you have to sign up for that college class. It's not a requirement and it's only in certain schools. So for me, entertainment is in everybody's home. If you turn on Netflix, it's right there. If we are able to create and advocate for Asian American history through television and film, we're able to then learn uh, something about our communities rather than just put something that's fake and doing rep just representation. I think it's really important that we learn our histories. So 
that's my, those are my missions and it wraps into strong Asian league because we're promoting for those stories. Um, but you know, it, at my, at my core, it's really about education and, um, what's been called the edutainment industry. Great. Thank you so much, David, for sharing all of that. I, you know, you touched on a lot of important points and I think, you know, that sort of journey to better understand like your family's history, but also like Asian America's history is like a very, you know, it's like a common core experience that a lot of us Asian Americans um, have. Like, I remember, I didn't know anything about, you know, people like Vincent Chin, um, Bhagat Singh Thin, like any of these people until I watched the Asian America, like a documentary that released this past summer. And it was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't hear about these like core important people in our history in our history of activism and just like being in this country until I was like 18, which is crazy. Um, and there but, are so many more stories that are not being told. And that's the issue right. too, because my uncle was also shot by a cop five times with at point blank. And we're not told, and that cop got away with it. We're not told these stories. And sometimes our families don't tell these stories because of the trauma that they had to go through. So there's a lot of that loss of, of storytelling and family ancestry. So when we're looking at these things, we can't turn a blind eye to our own history and then to the as we expand to the history of every culture because there's just so much we don't know. Absolutely. And Emmy, do you want to share your story as well? Yeah, I mean, gosh, every time I hear David's story, I'm just so inspired. And like the moment where you said 1909, to have like a record of the actual year that these things took place is a level of understanding that I wish we could all have. I wish we could all have such a clear documentation of where our families came from, even if it was to build or craft the story in our own minds. But one thing that makes me passionate and ties to my own identity story as well is, is combating the erasure of our stories, right? American strategy and white supremacy strategy has been to erase history to erase our identities and erase our understanding of where we came from so that it can no longer have we we no longer have that power and so over the past few years it's been amazing to try and regain that power by understanding my own identity and my own story I don't know years or exact dates in my family story because of the very thing that David mentioned the shame around World War II in Japan my family has been living in the same plot of land in Miyako no Jo Kyushu near underneath the volcanic uh, mountain Kirishima for 200 years. And I only know up to my great grandfather's name, but beyond that, I don't really have a record of information that I can have access to that tells the story of where my family came from. But the moment that I really realized that I needed to do that was when I went to the Udvar-Hazy Air and Space Museum in Virginia. And I saw the Enola Gay there. And the Enola Gay was the airplane that dropped the bombs on Hiroshima. And it's massive. And I was just, I was so angry, to be honest, to see that plane memorialized in a museum like that. A plane that just brought so much destruction upon Japan, upon my people. Essentially, I was furious. And then I realized that 
anger wasn't going to get me anywhere. If I was just mad about this, it wasn't going to move anything. But it did allow me to see a great level of appreciation for my grandparents because my mom and dad met in Tokyo in the 80s where my mom was doing cross-cultural training for a number of corporations. And um, my dad had taught himself how to speak English through listening to the radio. And it was their common passion for like the environment and the world and like building a better future that brought them together. And it took my parents like nine months to convince my grandparents to meet my mom. And my grandparents sent like family members from the countryside to the city to try and break apart this union, <laughs> but it didn't work. And when my mom went to Japan or to Miyako no Jo to meet the grandparents, they were blown away. They were like, this white woman can speak English. I mean, it can speak Japanese. This white woman can speak Japanese and understands our culture. And they began to realize that not all Americans were the same. And they began to love my mom for who she was and her fascination with the culture. And eventually my grandparents on my Japanese side, and my grandparents on my American side met. And while they couldn't speak the same language, it was truly a healing moment because my grandfather had been inscripted into the um, Air Force in Japan to be a kamikaze pilot when he was 17 years old. At this point, you know, Japan was so desperate in the war that it was just throwing bodies at the cause. And the war ended right before he was deployed. He was in Korea about to fly his plane into, assumingly, a ship. Um, and the war ended. And then my grandfather on my American side was a engineer um, in General Patton's Third Army. And he was he was building bridges for tanks to go further into their invasion in France and Germany, etc. And then in the after the war, he came to Tokyo and Nagasaki and rebuilt parts of Japan. So while they never were able to speak fluently to each other, they shared this story. And I just found it so incredible that two men that had been really trained to hate one another decided that for the cause of the future, that they were going to teach their family how to love one another and how to love people with different perspectives and different views. So my parents were able to marry. I became a product of that love. And it's been a really important part of my journey. My name actually, Emmy, is written um, with the character for love, I in Japanese. It means forever love. So if anything, I think one of my core missions is to help people understand that we are a lot more similar. There's history that must be accounted for. Like I'm still trying to parse through my own colonizer history, right? I've got colonization on both sides, the white side and the Japanese side. And that has affected my own identity. But as I move through that, I'm still really driven by things that we have in common, the values, the things that drive us, that motivate us, that have that we have in common. And sometimes we just need people to translate that because people really have so much fun finding the differences between all of us. But I know that the work that we do with Strong Asian Lead and the community that we're building depends upon us working together as an Asian American community, but also in the larger scheme, uh, <laughs> You know, we're, we're just going to try to solve world peace, you know, with strong Asian lead, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Emmy. Yeah, that, you know, just to hear, like, how much you also, I mean, you mentioned how, like, David knows, like, all these different years of, like, his family history. But to also, you know, have that level of knowledge of your family history as well is also incredibly admirable. admirable. And, like, you know, people can just tell, the listeners can just tell 
sort of like the the energy and the optimism that you have um, towards like your work of trying to build community and solidarity um, and you know, just like your activist core. So once again, both of you, thank you so much for, you know, sharing all of that. Um, I want to also ask you both how, um, you know, you got started in media and entertainment and also how you felt like uh, different media platforms have allowed you to better understand uh, your Asian American, your Japanese American identities. Uh, yeah, that's actually a really great question. Um, so, I mean, I got started in entertainment mostly because, you know, I was watching YouTube videos back in high school. I loved visual effects. I loved all these lightsaber videos that were going around and, uh, you know, the Freddie Wongs of the world just kind of like, oh, that's so cool. They're doing really dope, um, you know, visual effects stuff. So I started, uh, uh, I was doing graphic design class back in high school and uh, I was doing Photoshop and I was surpassing all my all my classmates and you know, my teacher was like, oh, you know, okay, you're, you kind of already finished all the homework. Why don't you go to the cabinet and look at the tutorial videos that are there? And so I picked out uh, After Effects and thinking, I was like, oh, what's this program? I don't know what it really is. And it turned out to be basically like Photoshop for video. So the visual effects program. And so I started making little lightsaber videos and took forever to rotoscope every single frame. Um, you know, I cut off heads in people on the videos or try it out. It was just really cool to see how something could be put together. Um, and so I was going to, I decided not to go to uh, computer science school. <laughs> so thank God I didn't do that. I was not equipped to do the math. I uh, did not want to do that. So but my parents weren't really happy about that at first. Um, but they let me do it and they let me go do some studio art program or do something else. And it wasn't until um, a couple months in, I got my first job as a videographer for a wedding video. Somewhere in my, I think actually that was my like second year of college. I'd already moved on from like from visual effects to like editor, like just editing clips together. And um, then I was working towards, I was working at Starbucks at the time and someone came on like, hey, our videographer just dropped out two weeks two weeks before the wedding. And so we need somebody. Does anybody know how to do stuff? I'm like, I can do it. I'll do it. Let me do it. <laughs> just so I bought my first camera. I came in like the day before the wedding. It almost didn't come in. And so I got it. I was going to have a backup camera. Um, we put it all together. I was like, hope this works. And so I just shot a couple cool videos and it looked good. It looked like a nice wedding video. And that was the first time my parents had seen me put something together besides some cheap, you know, cheap shitty camera that was like visual effects and cheesy it actually looked like a real thing like he'll be fine and so that was the moment i was able to do that kept making videos in high college and stuff um then i left graduated college moved to new york um still i became a became assistant editor at a music video company which uh they then stopped paying me because they're terrible people and I uh, moved into I was already doing photography with that same camera I was just walking around doing street photography in New York that's kind of a thing um, and so I ended up going working with a, another musician so she took me around the world and I go into all the Europe and did the whole European tour as a photographer and then I became a photographer for activism and nonprofits after the 2016 election so I kind of during that whole time I kind of stopped doing the video stuff more to, uh, to photography and uh, when, you know, I, after, after the photography stuff, that was when I, they told me, you're, you're a person of color. And I was like, oh, I need to learn more. And so I'd, I'd still been screenwriting the whole time, uh, just practicing, just making films and uh, seeing, practicing the craft and just 
getting it down to see how fast I could write. And so when I realized, I was like, I need to tell these stories of Asian Americans because I'd only been writing white people in my scripts. So I thought that's what sells. Uh, I hear a lot from screen, Asian screenwriters, like I only write white people because I thought that's what sells. And so I started writing Asian stories, just trying to make some stuff up. But then when I started learning history, I was like, there's a whole story here. Why do I have to make up a story when I can look at history, like do the real research, find every last detail as much as I can and tell historical stories because these need to be made at some point. So I think it's something that I really love enjoying. So let me do this. Um, I was doing music videos at the time and uh, just working on practicing. I had pushed myself one of those first years to make one video every month. And for one year I made like 19 videos. And so it was just practice and learning, crafting and um, making mistakes. And you don't, you don't, can't make mistakes unless you don't try. And you can't learn from those mistakes unless you actually make them. So I kept practicing. And when I realized, I was like, I can't keep being in Brooklyn if I'm going to be in Hollywood. It's just money cap. It's a lot of independent world out there. It's a lot of documentaries. Um, it's just not the same. There's no TV. All the industries, a lot of it in Hollywood. So I moved back in, in November. In 2019 and uh, I got my foot back in the set going to I was working in the art department as a PA did a couple com uh, a commercial and then I started working uh, volunteering at other places learning stuff like learning the craft of being a prop master I love working with my hands and building things and you know creating business cards or um, flashlights things that work turn on and off like just crafty things um, so that's another forte if anyone gets into there but you know the whole goal was you know, get my foot in, learn different departments. Um, and I really enjoyed working with my hands. But then when the pandemic hit, I we had all that shut down. So I really didn't have anywhere else to go. Because um, being on set is a really intensive job. So we want I wanted to think about um, how can we do the industry a little differently? How can we see the industry as a business? There's much more to think about. And so Emmy and I had met at another um, activist event. And we started talking about strong Asian lead. Uh, I'd already grabbed the handles. And I just wanted to talk about this Asian American Hollywood because I had still seen Asian Hollywood still being just so sparse um, and being still kind of stereotypical. When I was in Hollywood before I left for New York, I was getting uh, gigs that were just so um, kind of degrading for Asians, even if it was Asians making the films. It was like, I just didn't want to be in those spaces. Uh, so when I came back and we wanted to change Hollywood, this is kind of how I wanted to provide. I don't want just my script to be very well um, and receive and me get a job and me get paid and all that stuff. That'd be me, me, me. I really want to bring up us, like the whole community together. So changing the way the industry works and looks at Asian Americans got us to think about what is the current landscape of Hollywood and how, how are Asians up and down through the executive suites to the bottom down to the new writers. So when we found, started finding the data and doing the research, we found those huge gaps. And so that's what got us into like entertainment activism, at least me into entertainment activism, to try to change the way things are working currently so that in five to 10 years from now, it's not gonna look the same. Uh, we've been trying, to, Asians have been trying to do it for a, a long time, but they've really kind of been trying to push for more stories, but not change the, the structure of it so that's kind of where i come in now and how i want to invest my time into the entertainment industry uh that's kind of that's yeah that's where i'm at gotcha and david do you also want to briefly talk about um you know how you got started with rogue photo and also your um 
pretty recent podcast, Regis Radio. Do you want to briefly talk about those? Oh, man. I already thought I talked enough on these things. Um, yeah, I'll touch on them real quick. Um, yeah, go for Rogue, it. Rogue Photo started out as um, me going to my first protest. So after my work at, with the artist, uh, she, you know, she got me to practice about getting photos out to her fast. And so when I started learning how to do that, I was able to I just texted over her so that she'd have it before I even get home. And so I started going to these protests and my first protests were in New York. And I was taking pictures of people. And I'm like, these people are, these are actually great photos, but I can't do anything with these photos besides put them on my Instagram page. And what's that really going to do? I can't even find these people. How am I going to find them ever again? So I started giving out the photos right away to the people. So I'm like, hey, I took a great photo of you. Can I just send it to you? So they can use it on their Instagram pages. And that's more powerful. Not only is it they're getting their exposure, but it's a photo of them doing something that they're really uh, inspired to do. So that snowballed into me doing the same thing for nonprofits. I would take pictures of nonprofit at work, the, the photos of the place, and then like I just hand it over to them. Just give it to them, I send them an email like, hey, I took photos of your event. Thank you for putting it on. You put on, you did all the hard work. Here are some of the photos. Use them as you like. You want to send them to your newscasters. You want to send them on your Instagram page, your profiles, whatever. Go ahead. Just here. And so they started like, thank you. This was awesome, actually. And they started coming back like months later, like, hey, thank you for these photos. Um, we're actually having another event. We'll pay you to do it. And so I had started getting so many more of those that I was like, I can't handle them all. So I started creating this whole organization to be like, who, what other photographers are in the same space of activism photography? Because I'd meet them on the street because we're all photographers going in the same area. So I'd get their contact information and then say, hey, we got a job here that I can't really take. Do you want this? And so they would get paid. Nonprofits would get photos that are inexpensive and working with local photographers. Everybody wins. So that's how Rogue Photos started. And it really just started out with me giving away free photos to nonprofits. I didn't have a voice at that time. Uh, the voices were a lot of Women's March and White Supremacy. It was like, I didn't really, I was still learning. Um, and the Asian activism wasn't really around at that time. There wasn't, there isn't something to really activate for. There might have been smaller things. I was like a one-day protest at Chinatown to um, shut down the jails, or you know, small things I either didn't get involved with, or just I wasn't in the right place, right time. So that was what I could do back then. Now it's now it's something I can do in my activism world here because we are starting to protest. How can we start organizing as a community? Um, so I learned a lot from the activism days of Rogue Photo. So that plays into what's doing today. Uh, the Redress Radio is my other podcast. It's uh, only on one season right now. But what it is, is basically a, um, a podcast of me talking about activism in the Asian American community with the surrounding events of uh, the 1980, 1983 to 1988 uh, trials for reparations for Japanese Americans. So after the incarceration during World War II, they started protesting back in like the 60s and 70s. And when the uh, the Commission for Wartime Relocation came out from the FBI in 1980, they saw the report um, that the FBI had done and basically said, honestly, this was not necessary. The, there was no military reason for, um, no mil military security reason for why the Japanese should have been put in these camps. If anything, the Japanese were more in danger of the white people than the other way around. So when they started reading some of that and understanding that this was wrong, they started protesting and gathering testimonials. So there's hundreds of hours of testimonials uh, across the time, um, across the internet and around. They can listen to it, telling about their stories and 
you know, this is what we were before camp. This is what happened during camp and after camp is life was this way. And it was, you know, we came back to uh, gangs and we came back to, you know, Japs aren't welcome here. Um, all these things that you'd hear about how the camps were just horribly put set up and uh, who were who, all their, you know, friends were murdered or this guy was just near the baseball picking up his baseball and he was killed because he was too close to the fence. You know, so many stories that you would just never hear unless you actually listen to people come from them. And so they testified against this, the Supreme Court and the uh, wartime commission, even in smaller circles at, at colleges. And so I've found a new an archive of them that were available. So now I put them on through a podcast so that we can all listen to them. And then we and I do a little commentary so that not only are we hearing these things, because I think it's really important to hear this part of the history, but that we are able to talk about them. So there's there's so much to that um, that I've had to do to make them even sound good at all. But I think it's valuable, even if it's just something that's put out there that's easily accessible that we can all talk about. So that's that podcast. And I hope to continue doing that in the future. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've been listening to Regis Radio. It's like incredibly powerful to hear like these testimonials of the firsthand stories. Um, and I'll allow you to, you know, plug like where people can listen and stuff like that at the very end of this episode. Um, but Emmy, uh, how did you get started in media and entertainment? Um, how have you found that different platforms have allowed you to explore your identity? And um, yeah, and feel free to talk about your project uh, and your organization, Defiant Changemakers as well. Absolutely. I am a recent convert to the whole entertainment space. I must say that I never, ever expected myself to be in the entertainment world. I had followed my heart and gut to go study international relations in college um, because I was set on being a diplomat. And as I kept studying international policy and relations, I really didn't find that the strategies we've been using to make peace in this world, and I said that with air quotes, um, I don't think that they're effective because they all lean on this perspective that um, we're all after the same resources and only some people can get them and other people can't, and so we must fight for those resources. And that was what really surprised me about my studies of international relations at my university. But I ended up spending all of my spare time outside of class at the Multicultural Student Services Center at my university. And that is where I began to really explore what my identity meant and how it interacted with the identities of other people around me. That was the first place where I met other people who felt like they didn't really fit the mold or they didn't quite belong in big, bigger spaces. And now as I study, have studied more and worked in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field, I understand is that we didn't feel like we belonged in a white majority culture. And all of that translated to me thinking about how we can make larger organizational settings better, more comfortable for all people, not just for some people. So I ended up working in, I worked in not only Capitol Hill and the Japanese embassy, trying to figure out some of the structures there, seeing what systems were working, what systems were not working, got completely burnt out of that world. It's exhausting to be in policy and working Japan hours and US hours during the day, trying to create relationships there, trying to create understanding there. So I ended up shifting over to working in the nonprofit space in people operations and company culture, which felt much more organic to me, thinking about inclusion, thinking about 
how we will show up every day feeling like we're excited for work because we feel comfortable with the people that we're working with. I ended up moving to Los Angeles about five years ago and the work continued there, but I got this amazing opportunity to take this skill set of building inclusion, looking at the culture of organizations and groups within them, uh, and apply that to working at a top agency in Los Angeles. And at this point in time, I was the person who's like, oh yeah, I never watch TV. I watch movies sometimes. They all have to have a social justice impact. You know, only stories I will consume are ones that talk about social justice, that talk about um, moving the needle in public policy. Uh, but when I went to CAA, I got immersed in that culture and I was able to see the structures even within the Hollywood industry mirrored a lot of the structures that I was trying to change on Capitol Hill and within organizations. So while I was at this agency, I was able to see that we also needed affinity spaces for the employees. A lot of the time I spent um, working there was actually almost being a counselor to assistants and young executives who were like, I don't understand how to fit into this mold. I don't feel like I'm giving the, being given the opportunities that I deserve, and I'm not sure how to navigate that. So there was already some really great work being done in different multicultural groups, but there wasn't an official designation for multicultural organizations to have funding or access to use the um, agency's resources. So working with a lot of the leaders there, we were able to make sure that employee resource groups were official, that they had access to funding. And I was spending most of my time with the agents and media group and, um, that group of incredible assistants to executives are shaping a lot of change within that organization. But my background in looking at systems helped me figure out that there are always barriers and there are always opportunities within an organization. And it takes time to influence leaders and people, organize them to want to make that change. Um, so that things can be more accessible because change is scary for organizations. But personally, I think something's broken within me because I don't think change is scary at all for the most part. I moved every three years of my life, have seen a huge amount of change just because of my own lived experience that I, I always will rush towards change and think it's always a positive thing versus a scary thing. And that's been something that has driven me within the entertainment industry. David underplays his genius when he said that he, you know, grabbed the Strong Asian Lead name. Strong Black Lead is an initiative that's led by Netflix. And when I saw that David had grabbed the name Strong Asian Lead, I did some research and I was like, there's no Strong Asian Lead officially for Netflix. Nobody has the, uh, the Instagram account except for David and the Twitter. This guy is genius. He is claiming Strong Asian Lead for us, for the people so that we can utilize that. So when we started talking, we we're like, wait, what does it look like to make a movement? What does it look like to organize all of the Asian Americans so that we can have more power, more influence and take up more space in Hollywood? Right now, what I saw as one of the systemic barriers is that all of the ideas that come through need to be approved at the marble tables of the big industry leaders, right? But that means that lots of bias can come in there, especially if there isn't representation within leadership and executiveship of Asian identities or other marginalized identities. So we kept thinking, 
why don't we just build our own table, approve our own work, get lift up and celebrate our own heritage and our own identities. And David's work in organizing matched my own love and passion for organizing. I had spent many years being a member of the Japanese American Citizens League, which was one of the main organizations that helped with the redress movement. And there I learned basic tenets of social justice organizing. There are structures, there are processes, there are systems that help people get organized. And because I'm such a systems lover, I kept thinking we can utilize those to make a movement. And David was already doing that. He was already starting the conversation there, bringing in the history. So I was so inspired by his moves already, his claim to say that we're not just going to sit by and let the industry shape our narrative. We're going to go ahead and be the owners of our own narrative. So now I'm much more immersed in entertainment and in the industry and media. And throughout my life, while I wasn't the biggest movie watcher, the biggest TV show watcher, the reason was is because that content wasn't about me. It wasn't about stories that I could identify with. I would cleave towards stories that were focused on Black families and Black communities. Like I watched so much Moesha when I was younger and Cosby Show when the, when we could talk about and watch the Cosby Show, but it moved me because um, I felt like these communities that I was used to were the ones that I could see on TV. Now that's changing. I watch so much more content because there's content that's about communities that are not white, stories that are not white. And that's the content that I love. Yeah, I think, you know, I I was also very much similar to how you were, Emmy, in terms of like, I never really watched too many movies or TV shows growing up. And honestly, I kind of like, I, I honestly like looked down on them a little bit I was like oh you know like movies aren't that important like they they like they don't have a huge impact on people but now like that you know specifically after I took a class my senior year of high school on like Asian American literature and film that really sort of inspired me and sort of like opened my eyes and my world to the importance of entertainment and media in sort of impacting like how people can imagine like a different like a different world for themselves and for, you know, everyone. Um, exactly. Like, that's actually what got me my job at this agency was being able to paint the vision of the value of entertainment and the responsibility that entertainment has to drive culture towards something that is better for people than rather than something that is harming people. That's a responsibility that I would say that the industry does not take seriously enough. The government takes it only so seriously. But the entertainment industry has almost even more power to influence people than the government does because people are locked in and tuned in to entertainment all the time. So when I was interviewing with this agency, I said, I want to work here because this agency influences what people see, what people think about themselves, what people think about their own agency to do something about their lives. And so... That's why I think we have a huge responsibility as strong an Asian lead to support other Asian creatives and leaders within the industry and help them find their identity so that they can advocate for the stories that will make an impact. And every little piece of it counts. So thank God for 
you know, organizing being one of the platforms and tools that we can use. Because if we didn't have like social justice organizing, I'd just walk out and be like, well, it's impossible. We can't do anything about it. But, you know, David always sends me hope and sends me amazing books and like stories of teaching me how to be a better activist. Absolutely. And we can, you know, I also definitely want to give you both the chance to talk about uh, Strong Asian Lead because, you know, you all are like a very important part of sort of like this grassroots movement um, in building, you know, community amongst the Asian diaspora and, you know, Asian creatives in the diaspora. So can you tell the listeners, like, what is Strong Asian Lead? Um, How did you both get it started? And what kinds of projects and endeavors have you been working on within the organization? So Strong Asian Lead started from Zoom conversations. Or actually, I'll say that Strong Asian Lead started from a LinkedIn message. David Maria's LinkedIn message was the only LinkedIn message that I read, uh, I think, in 2020. And he said, you know, we met at this Young Entertainment Activists event. So shout out to the Young Entertainment Activists group. They're incredible. Check them out. And I would love to talk with you. And our conversation started with, dang, David, you are so clever for grabbing Strong Asian Lead. What could this movement look like to a lot of iterations? Throughout 2020, we spoke every single week about how we build this. What is really the need for Asian Americans within entertainment? We realized there's so much work to be done around identity because people come to the table with varying understandings of their identity, right? As you've seen in your own podcast, Angel Arena, like the interviews, people own their identity. People are just discovering it, still learning. And yet when we come into a room, we're all just seen as Asian. And that is already, there's already a perception of what that identity holds. So a lot of our work and our own discovery has focused on our own identities and conversations around how identity impacts the stories we tell or how we pitch ourselves when we walk into an executive room within Hollywood. Um, The other piece, the core tenets of what we're trying to do is we're trying to spark conversation. We're trying to be bold. No, we're not even trying. We are being bold on our podcast. We're calling people in and calling people out because we know that the conversation needs to be had. We're not experts on every single perspective, but we want to invite people to share what they think about what this industry is doing and challenge the industry to do better. That's a huge part of what the podcast is about. Yeah, and a lot of what we want to uh, provide is resources. So there's tons of uh, available resources online, a lot of different places, but I do definitely do see a lot of uh, white resources. So the Asian perspective on it is being a lot, uh, extremely lost. So whether it be a podcast on screenwriting um, that where I've heard just microaggressions just through, I've had microaggressions just through podcasting. I'm like, you don't think there's a story there? I'm like, I know there's a story there. Um, or, you know, just being able to think about the business side of how people are trying to sell, you know, quote unquote, sell Asians. But like Strong Asian Lead is here because we want to talk about the, the top down level and uh, bottom up. With the top down, we want to talk about executives, uh, marketing departments, uh, PR departments, their uh, employer resource groups, the ERG, right? And talking about the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion from an Asian perspective, because we find that there's a lot of Asian uh, DEI through black and brown voices, but then they leave out Asians because we, they, maybe people think that 
the brown includes the Asians, but we don't include ourselves in the brown. So it's, there's this lack of communication of what it means to be Asian um, and how they're how they're already blocking us when they say black and brown voices and we don't feel like we're included. So it happens too often. So we have to think about what does it mean to also include Asian stories in there, especially if we're going to start We've already seen things like Crazy Rich Agents and Farewell and Nora from Queens and um, Dumbfounded's new show. Like all these shows are starting to come up, but we have no real conversations within the Hollywood industry. So I was talking to some people who, who do marketing and PR and they're saying, you know, marketing doesn't put any budget into marketing for these Asian films because they only see Asians as 6% of the population. So they're only, they say, well, it's not enough for the population to market at 6%. So why should we put money into it? But that's backwards thinking, because if you only if you don't put any money into the marketing, you don't hit that six percent and you don't hit the rest of the world. That six percent doesn't even hear uh, about the story. And so they, they don't watch it. So then by not getting watching it, not viewing it, not going to the public um, and having the numbers or buying tickets, then automatically it's going to fail. So when you're doing these marketing programs in just in the entertainment industry itself and you say there's just not enough money we can't put money into it because it's only gonna hit six percent of the population like then you're only looking at asians watching asian stories why aren't you going there's so many more people who would want to hear these stories um who are not asian i was just talking to a woman who's totally white white woman doing this like i loved this one movie in from taiwan it's like you knew that story like she loves all foreign films. Like why won't people want to watch these stories and hear about them? There's a huge market for that. So you can't just say 6% of the population is Asians. That's the only people who are going to watch Asian stories. Asians don't only watch Asian stories. White people don't only watch white people's stories. So why are we, that's, that's a backwards way of thinking about it. And so when I was talking to that guy, he was like, actually, you're kind of right. Like we need to start seeking up for ourselves because no one else is going to. Uh, everybody else needs to stick up for themselves, which is great. And we should be also promoting and uh, championing other stories of color. But if no one else is going to champion stories of Asians, we have to story, uh, they have, they're busy championing their own stories. We have to be busy championing our stories as well. So there's a huge gap between the education process, whether it be in the acting world, screenwriting world, directing world of the Asian American space, that we don't have a, not, I don't want to call it a pipeline, but we don't have a system for ourselves set into place that we're all growing together, uh, learning properly, learning uh, different dialects from other Asians, because we don't need uh, white people telling us how to speak our languages. Um, it's very strange, it's a very strange world that we're living in in the Hollywood space. So Strong Asian Lead is here to uh, really push back the industry a little more. Um, there are other Asian uh, companies out there that do similar things within the entertainment space, but uh, we're the ones uh, not beholden to a lot of different places because we're not being paid by other sponsorships. And so we're able to push back a little more. And that's what activism and grassroots are able to do um, when you're when you're funded by uh, either your own money, other people's money, the community's money. I mean, that's why Bernie Sanders is doing so well in certain places because he's able to uh, fund through grassroots donations into his AOC. And when you're funded by other places and corporations, uh, you're beholden to a little bit of what they say. So if they don't like what you're saying, they want to shut you up, they just don't have to pay you anymore. So we're that, we're that little pushback activism group that will push a little harder because we'll speak up and speak out. It's really important to stand up for what's what you feel is right and how we're sticking up for community, not just for ourselves, but for a lot of different people because voices are not being heard. And so, you know, Strong Asian Lead is to be 
not only a one-stop resource group, um, but also just a, a community place that we can find ourselves in. Uh, I don't ever want to hear, um, I couldn't find a Cambodian writer in, in the space when there's definitely people out there. You can't just say there's no Cambodian writers. Yesterday, there, I was on Clubhouse and they were saying, there's only 30 Filipino writers in LA. I'm like, I definitely know that's not true. No way. No way. And so you're either thinking <laughs> that there's 30 Filipino writers who are in the DGA or in the writers, uh, writers group of America, uh, the WGA. And like, yeah, you, you're getting that stat from the WGA. Those are only people who are represented. What about the amazing writers who are not represented, who are not giving this credit, who are not on TV and film? Like they're still working at it. They might not be the perfect professional but they're doing it. So you can't just say there are only 32, 30 writers of Filipino descent. You can't just say there, they even said like there's only two, two Filipinos in Canada. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> that's just not true. What? You can't, when you say those things and you start, and you say them often enough, you start to think that they're facts, right? When you start right. to say in, uh, start to say lies enough or non-truths enough, you start to think they're facts. You can't spread those things. So the data is totally missing about what's going on in the unrepresented writers, unrepresented creatives out there. So we wanna change that. We wanna find out who is out there through a survey, through connecting with us, so that you know when people come through, there's different, different, um, different perspectives. I met someone last night who was Chinese and Puerto Rican. I was like, whoa, I didn't even think about that. Now I have to change my, my whole, um, my whole survey thing because i forgot that we shouldn't add every ethnicity in there because it could be mixed of anything i'm like oh, okay there's a lot more work to do so we're not having that thing even when they say okay so you say there's um three percent of asian writers in the writers room uh, in in hollywood okay what kind of asians where are you coming from are they all chinese filipino are you including filipinos in the asian voice are you including that aapi is that asian uh that asian representation only include asian americans or also asians from asia there are so many different ways that you're not thinking about what that could be broken down into that is the disaggregated data that's being lost so we want to change that we want to change the idea of the way uh, hollywood is really seeing asians as a whole uh just because we're seen as a monolith and then you put them in get a Japanese writer to tell a Korean story, and you're gonna get a lot of Koreans who really hate that show just because the Japanese was touching it at all. So we want we want to change that idea because you know white Hollywood just doesn't just doesn't know. It's not necessarily their fault. It's their fault for not learning, not even time, but it's not their fault for not knowing because there's so much that we're not talking about either. So we're just now starting to have these conversations and this new generation of Asians in, in entertainment are uh, willing to push back. We're willing to stand up. But I think the thing is, because most of the time we're the only Asian in the room, we're not able to stand up because if we do stand up and something happens, we have no one else to back us up, right? We can't go to someone and say, this happened to me. Uh, someone else yesterday said, you know, he was talking to somebody and he's wanted to know, um, <clears throat> they're mentioning somebody's name and they said, he's the only Filipino writer out there who's like at the top. He has no one else to look up to. He has, he's paved the road, but he has no one else to like get advice from. Everybody's asking him for advice, but he has nothing to back up. So what's going to happen is he's going to make it up and bring, bring everybody up. But you know, what's the company out there that's really going to be able to, uh, stand up for them? Like, if you're an Asian being discriminated in Hollywood, who are you supposed to go to? Uh, you have no other Asians resource group that's kind of there if they're not already there. Uh, do they know how to handle that situation? Are they, there's not really much of an HR in some places uh, in production companies all the time. 
And so to have a group that's going to be behind your back some way and be able to talk to you about how you might be able to deal with microaggressions or deal with a production company and maybe put you with somebody else, we kind of need that group out here. Uh, whether that means just like saying, you know, maybe we can't help you directly, but go to the Asian Creative Network, go to the Asians in Film, the Vietnamese Entertainment. There's so many other groups that we're kind of connected with. Um, but we're just all over the place. So I think what Strong Asian Lee is trying to do is get everybody to be on the same page. Have your separate groups. I think it's important to have your Japanese American groups, your Vietnamese American groups, your Korean Americans, like all these different separate groups, but under one umbrella so that if you go to this, if you don't know where to start, you start with us. So that not only can we point you in the right direction for your particular situation, but you can also find uh, great resources on the craft, what you're doing, how to set up a small business, how to create a better career for yourself. That's not just a shoot, shot in the dark. Like, let's help you understand how you can position yourself as in, as a creative, not only to prepare yourself for a manager, but also just to set you up in the long term as a real career rather than just hoping for the next job. So that's kind of a lot of what Strong Asian Leads about. Great. Thank you. I think it's really great that you both are sort of curating that list of resources. And I know you also have, you know, like a career accelerator program trying to help like, um, like Asian entrepreneurs, Asian screenwriters, Asian photographers, just like Asian creatives. And I definitely encourage um, anyone listening out there to get plugged into Strong Asian Lead and allow you to, you know, talk about your website and your social media at the very end as well. Um, but, you know, like, David, the whole, like, statistic that you were saying with, like, only 30, like, having 30 Filipino writers in Hollywood and, like, the the two only two Filipinos in Canada, like, I don't, I just don't understand, like, those kind of stats. But that's, that actually leads to another question that I have. It's, like, is Hollywood just not trying to make that effort to just, like, you know, get to know other like Asian directors, Asian actors in the industry? Like, do they actually care about like having diversity and trying to seek out and, and look for those creatives or they just don't care and they, they're not even trying to make this effort? I know David will definitely add on to this, but something that I saw as an outsider coming into this Hollywood industry, you know, I go into every industry looking for what barriers there are and what opportunities there are. What I see in the Hollywood industry is a culture of bringing up people that you know. And when an industry is started by white folks, they're bringing in people that they know, which is going to be a majority of white folks. So we've seen that create a chain, create different power structures. And then as, you know, not that long ago, segregation stopped and people could enter into the workforces in an unsegregated manner, you know, we're still in the throes of, of shaking that off within our society. But pe more people of color have risen in their roles and been able to lift up and support and, um, as, you know, David mentioned, vouch for people, um, have each other's backs within these industries. Uh, and another thing that drives entertainment is where they think they can make the most money. Um, but I think that there has been a very limited mindset about that, right? Just as David had stated, not only does 6% of the U.S. population um, identify as Asian or Asian American, there are a lot of other people who watch Asian, Asian American stories. Just thinking about the, you know, anime's draw for non-Asian fans or K-dramas, um, just as two examples from outside of this country or from within the country, but 
it's an extremely limited perspective when, you know, two thirds of the world is Asian. And there could be a lot more money to be made if we were really tap, truly tapping into the full power of Asian American identity. But I also think that there's a, one of the complications that we find that we're seeing within our conversations on Clubhouse or within our own community is that Asian Americans are also having a, a coming of age of our own identity. In the 60s, we had the movement, the Asian American movement, where we went from being known as Orientals to taking the name Asian American. And we've spoken with some of the leaders of that time um, about that shift in mentality of that regaining of power and identity. And I think we're doing that again now, Um, whether it was the racist attacks against Asians and Asian Americans because of the coronavirus, that's influenced it. Um, But we're also seeing more of our stories represented. And again, you know, Angelina, you had mentioned it, just being able to see yourself represented, believe that you can do more than become a doctor or um, follow the path that your parents say that you must um, is going to shape the game. Um, So those are some of the barriers that I see within the industry Um, and, uh, and a mindset and I'm, we are a part and every single Asian American now is a part of shifting the mindset that any society has about people of our identity. So what are we going to do with that power? That's the question that we ask ourselves and we ask the people that we work with. Yeah, I agree with Emmy. I think there is that whole uh, issue that they're bringing up their friends. And so when you have a lot of, um, white male folks who have a lot of money and they're able to take film school classes, take time off to make their films, uh, borrow $100,000 right off the back and do a, a first time project and then let it fail. Like it fails and it fails and they get to do their second one and their third one because they got to do their first one. But Asian Americans don't have that uh, the same luxury of having the money to make their first $100,000 feature film or even have any money to make uh, smaller films and stuff like that. So it becomes this game of like not having enough experience but not having enough money to make that experience and then it just circle back and forth um i think the other issue is that because a lot of people don't understand the difference between asian and asian american um they think all asian films are coming from china they're coming from japan i'm like where's the japanese american films like oh they're all you know all the anime stuff from japan like that's not japanese american that's not any of that stuff i mean that's not representative of a lot of different cultures and i gotten people from netflix to push back and like you you you're trying to push the diversity stuff but you're not pushing for the diversity stuff you're not listening to the asian side so what's up with that um i think a pro- other issue is that a lot of uh this is nothing against any of the films but a lot of asian films are um what the, if you go into shakespearean terms it's the tragedy and the comedies the comedies always have a very um hopeful journey hero's journey at the end of the day it's all wrapped up and you have a good feeling because the the hero won um in the tragedy films they don't really have a happy ending they're, they're kind of uh, somebody dies um something happens you know things you're kind of back at the same place where you started um you've learned a lesson, but now you're back. A, a great film to kind of reference that in American culture is like uh, Her with Joaquin Phoenix. Or Joaquin Phoenix. He doesn't have um, this, you know, Scarlett Johansson in his hand and he does and he learns something and now he's back to normal. Like it all went away. So you ha- in Asian films, it's a very, um, that's a very common thing to have this uh, tragedy ending because a lot of it's symbolism. Um, I think a lot of films, 
play on color symbolism, um, but color things like symbolism, symbolism, especially like color, doesn't translate to all languages and cultures. Uh, in America, purple and gold might be royalty, but in Japan, purple is scary and ghostly. So you can't have uh, a whole story based upon symbolism. If you write that in the script, it depending on who's reading it, really depends on if they understand where that culture is coming from. So you can't uh, create a story around symbolism. So when uh, you have all these films, they th in, in America doesn't really like tragedies. They, it doesn't really resonate with the rest of the most of the American society. So more people are very attuned to these uh, comedies where the hero's journey is complete and you, you've you won, you've saved the day. And I just think that uh, we haven't had the experience and the education to write scripts like this. We haven't had the practice to write scripts like this. The Asian American uh, movement, you know, hasn't been developed enough to have you know, the abilities of resources to talk about these films and create films that are very, um, I don't want to say palatable to the American audience, but at the same time that there is this game of learning how to do it. I, I see it as a game, um, which which I'm having fun with because there are rules to any game. And the way you have fun is by keeping with inside some of those rules. Why should we try to reinvent the wheel if the wheel's already been invented? So for writing scripts that have a very just a good formula to use, if we just have a story, like we can build the story, we don't have to build the story from scratch and the structure from scratch. You can, it's gonna be a lot harder, but if you follow a structure that's kind of already been built, you're kind of just playing the game and you're able to tell the same story. So I think we, we've had this, the artists in our in all of ourselves, we want to play against the game. We don't want to be the sellouts. But if you want to make your stories and sell your stories and make money to sell more stories that are going to change the industry, we have to play the game a little bit. So I think the game just isn't really understood and they don't tell us the rules and we haven't, no one's taught the rules. So what I, what I would like to try to do is teach everybody the rules so that they can make more stories so they have more impact. The second piece of that is that we don't have that many Asian Americans or Asian identifying people who do know, know the rules, right? Because of that lift, who you know, lift as we climb, people have brought up people that they know. There are fewer Asians and Asian Americans um, that are in the decision-making rooms or in the position to teach the people how to play the game. So a huge factor of what we believe will work is that mentorship strategy. Build a community, build people who are teaching one another, who are giving feedback to one another. So whatever we present is stuff that will be bought, that will begin to change the industry. I mean, Bling Empire, House of Ho, those are two shows that were bought after the Crazy Rich Asians boom, right? People were like, oh yeah, let's get more of that Crazy Rich Asians content out there. And does do these shows, as someone who thought that Bling Empire and House of Ho would be terrible for our movement, these shows truly are not terrible for our movement because they're representing nuances about our identity that are teaching people that Asian Americans are lots of things. They're really driving the needle in American understanding of what Asian American identity could be. So those are two of the, you know, personally, I'm, again, the social justice person who only likes to watch really deep and tear-jerking sort of content. Like, I want that sort of content to make it there, but I know that we're not just going to jump to that. We need to have all pieces and all different types of content go through, and we need people 
in the higher ranks to be investing in that as well. I agree. And I like Bling Empire. I binged it right through. And like, I thought, you know, we're going to have this whole talk about stereotypes about it and people can talk back about it. But, you know, I watched it all the way through and I was like, yeah, it might be crazy and rich and Asians, but at the same time, these are real people doing real lives. And honestly, they're, I don't I didn't watch House of Ho yet, but Bling Empire people, I'm like, I kind of want to be friends with some of these people. They seem really cool. Um, just really nice. And the way, the way they handle themselves is really different, but also a lot of the stories lines I felt very similar to. So I was like, I really connected with a lot of it. Um, but the third part about this whole thing that I'd like to touch on is that um, as Asians, uh, Asian Americans, we own, we don't have a vocabulary of our own identities yet. Um, and Hollywood doesn't either. So being Asian, right? What does it mean to be Asian? But what does it mean to be Asian American? And some people, some of my friends that I know, they're like, they don't understand what it, that whole Asian American identity, uh, you can't just put uh, in your character descriptions, Asian American. What does that mean? Because that's just in itself its own stereotype of what do you mean by Asian American? Because there is no Asian American. They all have different experiences, come from different backgrounds. And once you put an actor into that place, you know, as a character, it, that character becomes whoever that character's ethnicity is. So and when you write a character into scripts, you can't just put Asian American because that person, that character has to be a, th a three dimensional character with a full backstory. And so that full backstory includes their parents and their grandparents. So where did they come from? Are, is this a first generation Asian American? Second, third, fourth, like that all matters. So the the vocabulary and the understanding of uh, the term Asian American like, is broadly used and we need to start defining more specifically. And when you become more specific, it becomes with all this responsibility of uh, portraying it properly. So if you're a Filipino writer, you want to make sure that uh, you don't have to write only Filipino stories, but you can't just write Asian American stories because there is no such. There has there is a way of talking about it that is uh, you have to start to become more specific. And when you when Hollywood wants these very Asian stories, are they do they mean Asian as their own stereotype typical minds? Yeah, kind of. So we need to tell them that that's not the way to think. We have to start thinking this is an Asian American story, but it's also a Japanese American story. If this is an Asian American story, how are we making this? Um, you know what things are going to go in there as a Japanese American. Um, as a Japanese American, if you put a Japanese American uh, people in there and just call it an Asian story, but then you put uh, have them drinking your cult. Like that's not a Japanese American drink all the time. That's not what we grew up as fifth generation Japanese, at least. Uh, it's, uh, as far as I know, it's a very Korean thing. And if you're um, maybe a Shin Nikkei, it might be something, but it's not for us. So who is this person? You know, what what things are in their house? Is their decoration? It, the decoration just isn't Asian. It's going to be from one culture for the most part, if, if anything. So, you know, there's a lot to be talked about when we're talking about this Asian American identity because it's a huge play, but at the same time, it can it can have this trap door of being a stereotype of not of being a monolith. And that's what we have to try to fix on top of all of everything else. Right. Thank you both for sharing all of that. I know, you know, you all mentioned like a ton of different sort of issues in Hollywood in terms of like generational gaps and sort of like accumulating knowledge when it comes to the industry and like when it comes to creating complex um, Asian and Asian American characters. Um, I, you know, I definitely have like a ton 
of more, like so many more questions. But I think the really great thing is that, um, you know, I and also the listeners can always uh, reach out to both of you in terms of like, you know, engaging in further conversations, like continuing the conversation on platforms like Clubhouse. Um, but I think to ask you one last question, um, I want to ask what gets you both excited about the future of entertainment and media? Um, and also, do you have any advice for young Asian Americans out there who are looking to be um, you know, actors, directors, photographers, uh, work in the entertainment and media industry? When I look at the landscape of entertainment and media, what I'm excited about is people having agency over the work that they're doing. Creators feel like they have the ability to direct what they want, tell the stories that they want to. Sports players, they're part of the entertainment world as well, that they are able to build teams and create teams for their gain and not be not be under the beck and call of a particular system. So that's the radical in me. I see that happening within the industry. I see us funding smaller projects that get out there. And I see us not having to go to the old channels to get things approved, but instead us building new channels to approve our own stuff. So I think that there's power to be built within the entertainment industry. And that's what gets, gets me excited every day about seeing it shape and wanting to invest in the people that are shaping this industry. Connected to having your own agency, one of the things that I see as a, a barrier, but also an opportunity is that any big system, whether it's politics or the entertainment industry, when you enter it, it tries to embed you into its culture. And I've seen a lot of people go into that, go into the party scenes, go into being an assistant or a young executive and get lost, not know who they are anymore, not know what drives them. And that's very bad for your career within entertainment because your entertainment career is also built upon what taste you have. Everybody's supposed to have a taste. Everybody's supposed to know what they like. And so I want to encourage anybody that's entering the entertainment industry to do some work on discovering your own taste, what you like, who you are, and how you present that proudly in every room that you go into. Because if you start to melt away into the larger culture, nobody will remember you when you walk into a room. You want to be remembered, not for the bad things, but for the things that you're passionate about, the things that you care about deeply, the change that you want to make in the industry, and what you want to create. So having that pitch, having that certainty, even if it's just practice, if you're not somebody who's like naturally confident or naturally extroverted, that's okay. You can practice these things and you can discover for yourself your own way to communicate who you are, wherever you are. Don't lose sight of that. I think that would be my number one piece of advice. Just don't lose sight of who you are when you enter this industry because your voice is the thing that's going to change it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, mean, I think that's the number one thing to remember and uh, focus on your identity, who you are. Um, the more you know who you are, you're able to tailor. You're able to understand and keep that with you. And so when you're going your career for the next 30 years, you're not trying to be somebody else. I think that's really important. Uh, my advice is, uh, you know, take the time to learn your culture. Uh, really dig into it. Not just don't just think that because you are, you know, 
like learn more. There's so much that you probably don't know. And there's like, everybody has more to learn. Uh, start with talking to your parents. If you don't want, if your parents don't want to talk about it or have the time, um, start to Googling, start, start there first, you know, um, find reliable resources. I always find, I try to find articles that are written by Asian Americans, especially if they're within my culture. So I like, look for very specifically look for Japanese and Japanese American um, writers and articles and stuff because I know they're coming from a certain place that I resonate with. Um, books, books, there are tons of books out there uh, talking about either race as a whole as Asian American, um, but also books from your culture from telling stories, folklores, mythologies. Um, historical books are really, really important too, just to see where something has come from. You know, I, if you're really interested in like I was, the first thing you could start with is food. How does food, um, how is food that in your culture, how is it still alive today? Has it changed? When did it become invented? Um, I think for me, my favorite thing is mochi. Mochi is a very Japanese uh, rice cake that we use these days. But, you know, it didn't start in Japan. It started in China, but it's been in Japan's culture for centuries. Uh, the samurai used to use it. And uh, it was a New Year's Day, New Year's Day uh, dessert kind of like. And uh, they would make a huge big ball of mochi and you'd have to scrape it with your fingers no matter how hard it was because you weren't allowed to use uh, silverware because it ruined the luck. So just... Things like that really bring into a lot of context of where these things come from. And when you start to learn about those things, you learn about your cultures and uh, how resilient they were and how wild certain things are that they would do a certain things certain ways. And sometimes you find out like, oh, I'd still do that thing. Um, I recently found out um, this week, just because I was listening to another podcast, like uh, it was a black culture or a certain certain place there's like you know they we found very similarities in the same because they also take off their shoes in their house and i was like no way like that's that's so fascinating so learning these things learning your identities and what makes you you uh, and the things that you do even just the small decisions that you make uh, you won't even realize that that's that's a real thing um you know learning the, how to do the rice a rice to water ratio with the finger i always do the finger pointed down i found another one that people do flat on their hands it's called the mount fuji method and i was like i didn't know people do it that way that's so many different things so if you ever put that into your films are you going to do it the mount fuji way or the finger way like there's a difference and so it connects with the people who are you're working with and what it tells a lot about the story just about um the little things that you do so finding your identity finding your history learning from where you come from i think is really important because not only will you find value in learning about where you come from but you start to find value in yourself because you have you and your ancestors have survived all of that um what I'm excited for the industry is to see more stories that I'm excited about, to learn other cultures, because I just don't have, you know, I don't have the capacity to keep to read all the hundreds of books that are out there from every culture. I'm still trying to learn mine. And I know people aren't going to learn my culture through reading all the books either. So I want to share it through television and entertainment. So I want to learn what they're learning so then I um, understand a little better um, and connecting with other people. I've connected to people. Um, a Sintali woman came on to our, our clubhouse yesterday. I was like, I've never heard that place. Like, looks really cool. And um, I'm interested in hearing more about the culture. And she was telling, she was a Bali dancer and she's all about stories about movement within the body. And I was like, never would have thought of that. And I think you, when we start to have these conversations and entertainment uh, and we start to be able to see them, I would love to see more Bollywood films. Um, I need to watch more Bollywood films. That's the whole, whole industry that I haven't talked about, but I would love to see more like, 
is there Bollywood in Hollywood? How, like, where's that Hollywood film? Because I would be interested in seeing something like that as well. So whether you think that's whitewashing or colonialism of Hollywood and stories, I still have something I still want to see, um, just to see how it's, how it's evolved over the years and the decades from original Bollywood and that Bollywood people are in Hollywood. So how does that evolving? So learning these stories, I'm really excited about uh, very authentic stories from Asians who are telling their stories rather than uh, other people, non-Asians telling Asian stories. I'm super excited to see how that rolls out, how different we're going to see ourselves in the entertainment industry within five to 10 years. And um, in the long run, our children are able to understand their culture a little better. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. Thank you, David and Emmy, for those pieces of advice. And of course, for speaking in the podcast with me today. Um, before you both go, I wanted to give you the chance to, you know, plug all of your social medias, plug Strong Asian Leads social media website, um, current projects. I know you all are also working on a podcast that probably, you know, it might be out by the time we release this episode. So yeah, feel free to plug everything and tell the listeners what's coming up for Strong Asian Lead. Yeah, so you can find us on Strong Asian Lead almost everywhere. Um, sometimes it has a little underscore at the bottom, but if you just search strong Asian lead, we're on Instagram, Twitter, uh, clubhouse. We have our own club room. If you're not on clubhouse, basically it's like podcasting. If you had to, if you're listening to us right now and you want to say, Hey, I've got a question for David Emmy, that's where you can do it. It's the same thing We're I'm live on there every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 PM Pacific standard time. Tuesdays are our official days when we talk about a different topic with some other folks in the industry. Uh, last week, it was acting with an Asian accent. And so we had a three hour conversation about with other actors, um, what counts, what doesn't count, what is di uh, dialects, what's important to think about. On Thursdays are our Asian writers rooms, we talk about writing, how's, what's important about writing. Um, you know, the conversation yesterday was about uh, imposter syndrome. And I think we all kind of had and we kind of just disagreed, like, it's actually really helpful just to talk about it, to know that other people have imposter syndrome. So there's a lot of different conversations that we have and it changes week to week and we don't always record. So if you're on Clubhouse, you know, come come and join us and join the conversation. Um, there's opportunities to speak with us, uh, chat with us, share your opinions, tell us stories about your journey through the industry, uh, how it's worked out well and how maybe not has worked out well. So that's kind of where we're at. That's my platform. I can talk a lot. So um, you'll find me there almost all the time. Open up a room. I might be in it. Uh, you know, the social media is we're working on it. And we're depending on where when this podcast drops, it will have changed uh, to different places. Um, but you can always find us there. You can DM us and we're always available. You can go to the strongasianlead.com. You can find what we have right now is not a whole lot, but uh, if hopefully by the end of time this podcast comes out, we'll have our survey ready to go. Um, you can always drop us an email, sign up for our newsletters. And the other thing I'd like to plug um, before we plug the rest of it is uh, we are, our current campaign is for Bruce Lee's Warrior on HBO Max. So if you haven't already watched Bruce Lee's Warrior, there's two seasons out right now and we're still fighting for the third season. So uh, first thing you can kind of do is go to change.org and sign the petition to Save Warrior. So just search Save Warrior in Google and um, change.org and you sign the petition, please. That's the first thing you can do. Second, just watch it. Like it's a great show. Um, so good so amazing with all the actors the badass men kicking ass um in that 1870s uh chi 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 town san francisco like for me that's history that's uh, 
Asian American history and Bruce Lee. Like, what more can you really ask for? And there's badass women in there too, it, which is every, amazing. Oh my god, everything in the gambit. So you know, watch the show. The thing about what we what we found is that what we need to do to push for season three because there's a backstory behind it, but. What we need to do now is to watch the show, promote the show. If you're not on HBO Max, like just buy HBO Max for at least a month. Um, to, you know, like 15 bucks. Just go watch the two seasons. It's going to be worth worth your while just to pay for that show uh, and watch some other stuff on there. So uh, that's the campaign for right now. Look out for more uh, specifics. We also are having another campaign for Asian American Pacific Islander History Month. So, you know, keep up with that as well. One of the aspects of Strong Asian Lead is also looking at the diversity, equity, inclusion within the organizations within the entertainment industry. So we've been speaking with employee resource groups and giving them the structure to be sustainable. You know, just like student orgs, right? Um, there's a lot of change, a lot of change in people who are running things and um, changes within the organizations that these employee resources, employee resource groups sit under. So uh, we're consulting with employee resource groups to man navigate any change to be sustainable to actually do events and collaborate across the board again to build power not necessarily just asian american power but power within the industry to change it so that is something that i can absolutely plug um when in collaboration with strong asian lead and again just really want to echo david on the survey when that launches on our website that is going to be a place where we can begin to give the data to the industry that constantly says, oh, there's no data showing this, or there aren't eyeballs on this, or there aren't people working on these sorts of projects. We'll have the data to prove that that's not the case. We're going to be breaking down those limiting beliefs. So please fill out our survey. Yeah. And the last thing I'd like to plug too is that uh, Emmy does great DEI consulting for a lot of great companies. So if you're listening to this podcast and you know somebody kind of like, hey, we need some Asians uh, to understand and talk about this whole topic and be able to uh, disaggregate some of the data behind it. Like, let's talk about the industry and the workplace environment for Asian Americans, because we don't get to talk about it very often. And if we're the only Asian in the room, you don't feel like you can speak up um, because you're afraid of losing your job or being the, the, the problematic person. So we definitely want to work on that. But uh, I can screenwriting consulting and career coaching for uh, all the people in entertainment who are looking to uh, get find a manager, need help working on their scripts. You know, there's a way to do all these things. So I want to help you get there. It's not a this is not a competition. We are all working together to make these stories. So, you know, if you need things, you know, just looking at storytelling and, and how you're going to be able to position yourself for a manager um, that you're you're really ready for it. David will get you there. Uh, he has coached me a number of times throughout our work together. And let me tell you, he's amazing at it. It's comes so naturally to him. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you both so much. You both are so incredible. And I'll make sure to put, you know, all the strong Asian lead, um, social media links, website links, all your info in the episode description. So people can easily access that. But thank you both so much for being on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you, Angel Rita. Thank you so much, Angel Rita. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Homecoming Podcast. I'll see you all next Saturday with an episode with Anna Nayapatana on Thailand's pro-democracy movement.